This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. More authors ready and willing to talk. books always different. Well, we better get started, Jen. Right. There was a royal visit by the Prince of Wales back in 1920. This was Edward. He became the king who abdicated. He spent nine days travelling around Victoria, thanking the people for participating in World War I. This war changed many people's lives and is at the heart of Jennifer Bryce's debut novel, Lily Campbell's Secret. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you very much, Jane. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, thank you for writing a book. <laughs> there are a lot of World War I memorials in country towns and those soldiers who came back with physical injuries were honoured. But Bert Campbell went missing. Lily expected a telegram about his death, but instead got a letter from the lunacy department. What was his injury? Yes, well, he didn't have a physical injury. So he, he was shell shocked. Yes, it was called shell shock. When Lily went in, um, this is what the doctor asked her, and Jennifer Bryce is reading from her book. Have you ever seen a shell shock victim? Just pictures. I thought of the illustrated London News. This poor chap has had a very bad case, one of the most severe I have seen. The thousand-yard stare, tremors, muteness, uncoordinated movements, unpredictable behaviour. Even if he is your husband, it's very unlikely that he'll recognise you. Coming home with me that evening, Bert was quite compliant. I would take his arm and he would walk with me. I kept saying to him, I'm Lily, your wife. But he persisted in calling me nurse. I didn't realise then that it was his only word. When we stood up to get out of the train at Spencer Street, Bert's arms and legs went into a brief, uncontrollable jerking spasm. We changed trains and I noticed people giving us pitying looks. To others, Bert was a wreck of a man. A missing arm or leg was regarded with respect, a symbol of having sacrificed one's youthful agility for king and country. A nervous condition, however, was regarded as a weakness. Whereas people would go out of their way to help a man on crutches, on this first trip home, people avoided coming close to us. Surely magic would happen, When he first saw Edith, when he walked into our cottage, or when he had his first spoonful of rice pudding, something would snap and he would return to being the Bert I knew and loved. Mm. Lily Campbell was a wife who believed in her wedding vows, in sickness and in health. But it was a very different story before the war and before the wedding. Well, tell us how Lily met Bert. Yes, well... Uh, Lily, of course, came from a very well-to-do upbringing and had been to a nice girls' private school. And um, she went on holidays to a friend's farm up in Woodend. And um, there she fell in love with a stable hand, which was really uh, very inappropriate for a young lady uh, from that background. However, she realised that she and Bert shared a great deal of um, interest in nature and things like that. And um, 
so they ended up making love in the stable and Lily returned to school for her final term in the equivalent of year 12 and of course she realised what I described as the glaring unalterable fact that she was pregnant. She was gravid. She was gravid. (laughs) (laughs) Which she looked the word up in the dictionary and realised that that was, that was what her condition was called. Oh, gravid. Mm. How did her parents cope? Oh, well, can you imagine upper-middle-class parents with a nice girl, their only child, who had suddenly completely disgraced them? And the mother would have no more to do with Lily. She stayed at home until she could be married, which happened as quickly and as quietly as possible. Um, The mother then called her all sorts of terrible things, including a gutter snipe. Mm. And um, they just had no more to do with her after that wedding. And they were quite well off. Oh, yes. (laughs) They had a car. Yes. Mm. And a chauffeur and, you know, very well off. And it it contrasted greatly to the life that uh, Lily was now leading. But from school, she had a best friend, Dorcas, who lived the life Lily could have. She was a, a good friend who visited often and told her about what her classmates were doing. Now, they were all marrying men with professions and money. But Lily did have Edith. She did, and she really did love Bert. Mm. She had love, and the stories that Dorcas tells Lily about their school friends as they gradually marry these wealthy young men, um, I think most of them were pretty unhappy Mm. marriages. The only good thing was the money. (laughs) Well, this young girl, Edith, this young child, showed particular talent with music, as did her father, Bert, before the war. And Lily could have become a concert pianist, just as Dorcas did. And piano playing was the skill Lily had, but there weren't too many other skills she brought into this little cottage in Woodend. So what were the other things she had to learn how to do? Oh, well, she had no idea about cooking, (laughs) Or even she probably hadn't ever shopped for food. And fortunately, her neighbour, Mrs Sullivan, is one of those really good salt-of-the-earth kind of women. And um, she teaches uh, Lily, she teaches Lily a great deal. Mm. Um, They both cover a chair together, for example. And I think Mrs Sullivan does all of the work and Lily just stands by and watches. <laughs> but she learns quickly. You know, she has a job of ironing. She's never ironed before, but, you know, she needs the money, so she, she does it. Um, so they were a poor and, but happy family. This is before Bert went off to war, to quote from the book, Getting Paid to See England. Well, <laughs> his absence, uh, in, and in his absence, Lily has to deal with uh, lots of things. And Edith, two-year-old, having diphtheria. Now, Jennifer, you seem to have researched this pretty well. We've got Friar's Balsam, Bovril, and uh, rinsing the mouth with glycerine of thymol. Oh, what was the chance of surviving diphtheria around the 1920s? For a young child, it was pretty remote, and it was quite terrifying to get um, a diagnosis 
of diphtheria. Um, even even um, children quite a bit older often died of it, but certainly someone who was a baby or a toddler had very little hope of surviving. And it was very contagious too. Yes. So um, Lily had to cancel her piano students. And this gives us the connection to compu- composer du- du- Dubussy. Debussy. Debussy. What's the, what's the connection there? Oh, well, there, there were several connections in the book, but um, the one in relation to diphtheria is that um, Debussy's daughter... Uh, did die of diphtheria. She was a lot older than Edith. I think she was either 10 or 12, um, and she died, I think, just a couple of years after her father. Mm. I think Debussy probably had this child fairly late in life. Mm. Okay. Um, now, just a reminder of the time, what's the connection between piano playing and silent movies? Oh, well, yes. Um, when Edith gets quite a bit older and she's quite a good little pianist, um, she actually accompanies the silent movies in the Wood End Hall because because they were silent, um, something had to be happening um, to perhaps suggest the drama in the film. And so um, these films were accompanied by piano music pre- pretty much all the way through because, of course, people didn't speak. Um, they would just put surtitles up on the screen so that you knew what the people were saying. And um, the piano would sort of enhance the tension by playing these rippling chords and things like that. So um, it was probably, I would think that it was probably quite challenging to accompany mm. those movies and you'd be playing for quite a long time without stopping. So the, the, the piano scores actually accompanied the reels of film as they went around? I think so. Yes. Well, some very famous composers like Shostakovich um, mm. wrote um, film scores. Mm. So, Now, also at the time is another word that isn't used very often, pessary. Mm. What was that? Yes, well, I had to find out about that because <laughs> fortunately I grew up in the... Um, just in the age of the pill. So um, with contraception, um, it was very much easier um, from my generation onwards. But women of um, Lily's generation uh, would have been really worried about obtaining um, appropriate and safe contraception. And, of course, there were terrible abortions and things Mm. carried out, lots of unwanted pregnancies. But um, anyway, a pessary seemed to be um, the the best form of contraception for a woman. Now, I'm not absolutely certain um, exactly what a pessary was like. And so you'll be amused that in um, the part of the story where Lily goes to the uh, Royal Women's Hospital to obtain her pessary and another woman in the queue has never heard of such a thing and she says, what's that? And um, in the book I say something like, Lily wasn't quite sure herself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the truth was that the author wasn't quite sure either. (laughs) So why would Lily need one with a shell-shocked husband incapable of even toileting himself? Well, that's why it's called Lily Campbell's Secret. Now, um, Jennifer Bryce, in the in the acknowledgements, you mentioned the Alwood Writing Group. How were they helpful? Oh, look, my writing group 
is uh, extremely helpful. And I don't know whether this book would have ever seen the light of day if I hadn't had a writing group supporting me. Um, We've been going for more than 10 years, Elwood Writers, and it's called Elwood Writers because we meet in my apartment in Elwood. And um, there's four of us and we write different kinds of things, which I think is partly why the group is so successful. And we meet every second Tuesday, and we're about to have an anthology come out called Every Second Tuesday, uh, and we read each other's work. We send our work mm. around. We have um, two websites. One is a public one, so anybody who'd like to look at it, go to elwoodwriters.com. And we've also got a private one where we share things like minutes of our meetings. We're quite formal the way we um, conduct ourselves, and that's because that's an efficient way of of working. But, um, I mean, I was working full-time until fairly recently, and I find Elwood writers are very much like my work colleagues. We probably email each other every day. Mm. They'll be listening to this. <laughs> well, that's good. Um, the book's self-published. That's that's hard. That's you know you need you need a supportive group behind you to do that because it's the distribution, isn't it? Getting it out there. The distribution is really hard. Yes, um, fortunately, um, although self-published is the correct way to describe it, um, it was published through Right Word Enterprises, and um, David Grigg there did a marvelous mm, job of true. designing the cover, setting it all up, and stuff that I could never have done. So he did all of that. He got it printed. He got it sent off to Amazon, etc. But I had to actually um, do things like this to publicise it and get it into the bookshops. So, get it into the bookshops. I know it's available in reading. So Jennifer Bryce's Lily Campbell's Secret. So it's set around 1920 where there were many things that disgraced a person. A divorce, being placed in a mental asylum and pregnancy before marriage. Read Lily Campbell's Secret. Thank you, Jan. Now, there's a diversity and energy in Kathleen Mary Fallon's collection, a fixed place, the long and short of story. Writing styles are toyed with and conventions discarded. So, Kathleen, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Now, I'm going to start by reading a passage and then we can start looking at uh, what's actually going on. The child stood in the dark house. She stood barefoot on the woollen carpet. All she could hear irritated and terrified her. And the only sounds were the contractions of the corrugated iron roof and the ticking. Reaching up, she unlocked the grandfather clock cabinet, turning the tiny brass key in its lock. She reached up past the dangling brass pendulum to grip the metal hands. In her tiny hands, she held the thin metal, firmly feeling the struggle of the machinery. Time, tugging, straining, struggling. A frog held by its back leg. She held tighter, can't Can't you just see it, the struggle there in the dark, a child and the pomposity of time locked in profound combat and she squeezed and squeezed until the struggles and shudders lessened, stopped, died. Then she crept back to bed and there was only silence in the dark wooden house. There's no punctuation there. <laughs> what's, it, what's going oh, on? Get over it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. But there's so many other things going on here as well, really, in, in terms of your whole style and way of writing. I mean, that image of the clock and 
it, it works its way to this struggle with time, mm. etc. So you know, it's, it's overwhelming in many ways what, what you're doing there. In terms, how do you mean? In terms, well, of the, the, the progression, uh, the poetic nature, the the fact that you've challenged the way we normally read. Um, you've you've got the image of the frog as well. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, it starts with the with the the sort of creaking of the corrugated iron roof, which is paralleled with the ticking of the clock, and and that sort of ticking also then is added to further on in the story, somewhere inside me like a great clock, something struck, no chimes, no talk. Mm, I mean, mm. So it's, it's permeating. Um, how would you describe your writing style? Well. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid question. Um, no, 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 because all the way through, like it's a collection over about, I think it's about 30 years' worth, and a lot of the, um, maybe 80% have been published before, in anthologies and, and mag- magazines and so forth. And then there are 20% any number that are new. And I I never – I know it sounds weird, but I never think style. I think of the story. I think of the images. Something um, seems important to say. Um, so then it the style evolves – out and and the language evolves out of um, I, I write it and then I figure because each you know you want each story in a way requires a different style or a different language because it's a different time it's it's a different experience but there's a lot of free form going on there and so what we find is that in some of these stories we go from prose into poetry into di- well sort of scripting in many ways and and you're playing with form yes because the material to me demands it 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 it's not that i'm trying to be clever or trying to be experimental or something it's that it comes from you know it 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 comes from inside it comes from a sort of physicality and 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 memory and the language just sometimes breaks apart because it wants to say more. <laughs> well, in terms of the language saying more, we have a story called Not Unlike the Peeling of Many Bells, and it's about a relationship which goes awry and starts to unravel, but it becomes a fracturing of the individual, and we see that in the language. So, for example, she fell back. Her room came towards me, finding Jocelyn in the bed my mouth said sorry it said i couldn't help it said get the hell you'll never know it said jocelyn dragged herself out of the room by her own hair the window glass took my hand and said to carolyn this is the pain and smashed itself through my hand my mouth said sorry but you have to see it somehow on the skin i have to somehow show you i have to try to fix it fix it in this time and this space or there will be no end said the fragments of window glass (laughs) Now, we've broken reality here. Well, it's a traumatic moment. And how do you write trauma? How do you write... You know, you want the words to really work. So you could say, you know, I could have just written, oh, um, they had a fight and she... (laughs) She was upset, yes. She was upset. But how do you... And it's work. work. You have to, as a writer, you have to make the words really work. 
you know, so that the reader, not not so that, but so that the reader it gets what that traumatic experience well, really is. Because you've broken the convention mm. there, then that sort of parallels the breaking of her own self in mm. many ways, mm. uh, and and her whole world is shattered. Like the glass is shattered. Like the room is moving towards mm. her, and such like mm. she's lost in time, so to speak. Mm. I mean, there's a sense. Um, when I first started reading this collection, uh, of a, and your work has been compared to Joyce in some ways. I mean, the opening of A Fixed Place, so this uh, is the um, eponymous uh, first story, and it starts with an ellipsis. We almost enter um, without a full sentence that was the Christmas. She was the lucky one who got the silver ballerina in her plum pudding. And it was the same Christmas that Wendy, Jill and Annette gave her the paint-by-number Highland Lass. And so we're almost immersed. And mm. the only one I can compare it to is, is Joyce and Dubliners and, and that sense of, of what's surrounding the atmosphere, surrounding no, that's a, you know That's a great thing to say. I mean, Joyce is, you know, up there. I, I love jo- James Joyce and I've got Irish background so I get the kind of the hyperbolic kind of language and the sort of over the top intensity but I I guess I was trying you know it's like you Jennifer you know your book it's about all the stories in Australia how we grew up what's in our DNA and your your book is doing doing that too in a different sort of style in a different way but we need those stories and so yeah it's I guess from throughout, like the whole trajectory of the of the um, stories, is I, I almost called it curating the violence, because I I realised when I read them all, and I've got to have a warning here to people: do not read them, do not read the whole book straight through, because I did, and it took me. I was I was being haunted by the characters for nights because they wanted to speak. They were saying, you didn't say enough about us. You know, what about me? What about me? So, but it's it's sort of looking at, in a way, there are all sorts of violences, gender, racial, emotional, psychological, social, cultural, that make up our country. Well, I think in many ways the title, A Fixed Place, says it rather well because in many ways it's almost the opposite. Yes. Where these individuals in these stories Mm. are displaced, shall we say, or trying to find their place. I mean, there's one Michael, a potter, not a ceramicist. (laughs) He's dying of AIDS. And the uh, narrator is a lesbian, and they're coming to terms with their relationship, which mm. is is fascinating in terms of, and and you can have, oh, well, there is a meaningful relationship there. Yes, it doesn't have to be sexual or yes. anything like that. Um, so, how does their sexuality influence the nature of that relationship? Another one, which is quite profound, floating islands. Now, the narrator's in a relationship with Isabel and there's that backstory of the relationship, but the mm. sort of frontal story, if I can put it that way, is of the narrator trying to help Falsus, who's um, a migrant refugee yeah. who's, who's virtually enslaved. She's yeah. from Lebanon. There was an arranged marriage. She can't 
um, she's walked out of that, she can't go back, etc. And yet what it seems to suggest is that we're all floating in many ways because that relationship with Isabel can't be fully appreciated until Isabel gives her backstory with, yeah. to give context. Yeah. So yeah. it seems it's if you're portraying characters that are out of place. Yeah, they're all all the characters, I guess, like, you know, tattoo in um, hard-boiled, soft-boiled, um, scrambled about St Kilda street culture, you know, um, Big Red, uh, they're, you know, the... All of these characters, um, they were real or they were, you know, they were made fictionalised conglomerates of people I knew. And I hope that that their reality and their struggle in life and their integrity in a way, all of those characters live because they live in me. Well, it's the emotional reality that they're going through mm. that is perhaps confronting mm. um, and the violence they have to face. Now, another interesting one was, it's the tree, stupid. It sounds <laughs> it sounds so ordinary. But you've got uh, the preface to it. One in six road fatalities nationally occur on the Bruce Highway. On average, 40 people a year are killed on the Bruce. So uh, you relate driving along the Bruce Highway. But as the story goes, we start to learn more about the road toll in some ways and what influences it. And what have you got influencing the road toll by the end of the story? (laughs) Everything. Um, I did a PhD on the Australian South Sea Islanders and I travelled for two years or so up and down the Bruce, staying in Mackay and Bowen and God knows what, in this big old camper van that was very dangerous. If the university had known <laughs> what was going on, um, and I had many near misses. It was a very old van, very dodgy. And that's, the story's based on a near fatal I had, but then looking at, um, at, at, at you know, why there are so many... Like the, the road... From Mackay to um, the the the, um, uh, the mining town, it's two hundred kilometres or something, and it's like something like two hundred and ten, you know, uh, uh, floral tributes. I got to hate floral tributes. I hate floral tributes, but it's actually going to be in a book about road floral tributes. So yeah, but. The things that are influencing it. By the time we get to the end of that story, oh, you read the end. So, so it's not only it's a tree stupid. It's also it's the state of the Bruce stupid, and it's also it's the reckless disregard for public safety of the mining company stupid, and it's also it's the callous indifference of our corporatized institutional culture stupid. <laughs> but you, you build that. It's not just the road, and we we yeah. sort of look at something as oh look, it's 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 a bad road. But by the time you get the corporatized institutional culture, we see factors behind it all that are influencing these moments. Yes, about the poor woman who at, uh, I used to work at Melbourne Uni and the, the, we had a work safety day where we had to, to um, go to this huge meeting and all through the day, to make it interesting, they had this story of this woman, this student who'd had a terrible accident on an archaeological dig and we got 
you know, blow by blow throughout the day. And it was horrible. She'd been very damaged. And at the end, they said, they got up and said, and the university won. She got no money. And the whole auditorium jumped up and clapped. And I thought, whoa, this is, these are really seriously institutionalised people. So, and they've yeah. lost perspective. Yeah. But in this collection, we get a look at a range of different people from different perspectives, mm. which is shown through a, a writing style that uh, is unique and original in terms of how we view things. The collection is called A Fixed Place, The Long and Short of Story. It's by Kathleen Mary Fallon, and it was from the University of Western Australia. So, Kathleen, thank you for coming in today. Thank you very much. It's been very interesting. And, of course, I was speaking with Jennifer Bryce about her book, Lily Campbell's Secret. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.